2: Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And across the table from us, we've got the boys from the Life... With your dog podcast, returning for second or third? Second, time? Time. second, second time? time. Second time? Second time. It's been about two years. Yeah, so yeah. it's Luke and Panos. Thanks Welcome. for having me. What's boys? Panos' last name? Anagnostu. Oh, well done. What a good. Man. I know it all. And his real name's Paniotes. That's right. Hey. I know the whole hey. lot. Nuchi Poochie. Yeah, <laughs> Nuchis Pooches, <laughs> Not today. It's Paniotes <laughs> Anagnostu. I, I speak Greek. Good yeah. man. Well, I mean, I know how to say his name. You did well. <laughs> <laughs> you
0: did very, very well. Good yeah. man.
1: So
2: what's happening, boys?
0: Not much. It's really good to be back with you, boys.
1: Yeah. Thanks for the invitation.
2: We weren't invited.
1: Yeah. (laughs) When I say thanks for the invitation, I mean Panos invited.
2: Panos invited. Said that uh, he had (laughs) something to say.
0: We had something to say. We We rocked up, and Glenn's like, "Hey, you boys should just come inside and have a chat. We know you record on
2: Thursdays." Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, we were meant to a few weeks ago, but I had to cancel. I was wave had very important business to take care of, but we're here. We're doing it. So, what's happening?
0: I had a question for you boys. I was into a Joe Rogan episode. I can't even remember the guest's name anymore. You said his name. Joel Turner. Joel Turner. Mm -hmm. Really interesting episode, nothing to do with dogs, except he did mention, and I did think of Pat because you're in a similar sort of um, Mm -hmm. line of work with him, and he talked very much about open and closed-loop systems in psychology.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. So Joel Turner is a shooting coach. He has like mostly it's an archery thing that's called Shot IQ. He's a former SWAT team guy. His son is the best archer ever perhaps, and he's like a 16-year-old kid. Uh, Has won everything that can be won in archery, I think. Um, Um, I think I saw a clip of this episode. Is this the episode where he tells a story
1: about how he shot a dude through like down the side of a house or something? And there was like that. Yeah,
2: so he had to shoot left-handed with someone else's gun over the head of a little girl to shoot her father who was methed out and holding a knife to her. her. Yeah, Yeah. I saw that clip. And he just like
0: murdered his cousin or something. Yeah. So it was a high-stakes situation and because of that, Listening to the clip doesn't give it justice. You listen to the episode, it makes more sense. So in an open loop system, you You start off with a closed loop system where you're learning a skill slowly and methodically so that you can develop muscle memory. So you can go into an open loop system where something happens reflexively. I think Mm -hmm. it's a wrong way around.
3: Other way around? I think it's a wrong way around.
0: Closed loop is a slow – sorry, and then open loop means it happens reflexively.
3: I think from my memory – and I could be wrong. I listened to it recently and I listened to it a few times just so I could try and get the gist of it. But I believe what happens, the open loop system allows you to do the practice. The closed loop system, is allow it allows you to become autonomous in what you're actually doing where you're not thinking so much about it and stressing and then as he put it, when you're shooting or when you're pulling back the string on a bow and that explosion happens in either the cartridge expelling and firing down the barrel or the string sending the arrow forward, it's a hesitation that you have as a shooter or an archer in those sort of situations where when you pull the trigger, you flinch and you start thinking, oh, fuck, it's going to make that big bang. And then the butt of the rifle is going to come lurching back into my shoulder or Mm. the pistol is going to lurch into the air and it's going to give me a fright. And therefore the body starts becoming in this autonomous mode of preparing for that explosion. Mm. So what... His system was to try and develop that you don't think so much about that you know it's going to happen, you allow for it to happen and you even psych yourself up. It's kind of like counter-conditioning if I think about it. I'm sure you're going to weigh in in a minute with your thoughts on it, but I kind of listened to it and when you were talking to me about it, Panos, I thought, well, if this is relative to what we're doing in dog training, is it's basically counter-conditioning yourself to not feel those effects and then to reprogram yourself. So he and Joe Rogan were saying that when they talk about it, he has a word saying, here we go, to prepare yourself, that. Here comes the shot, Here comes like he's pulling back the string on the bow when he's going to send the arrow forward, but then he starts having a chant and mantra to prepare himself for it so he doesn't shock himself into thinking, fuck, and then overanalyzing everything and then think, fuck, I'm going to miss it now. He prepares, he starts thinking, here I go, here I go, and either send it or whatever word that they have then conditioned themselves so they don't
2: allow themselves then to start overthinking the reaction of what's going to happen next. What made you think of dog training when you were listening to this? Yeah. So, like, Because what I'm curious about, because I listened to the podcast when you said, I want to talk about this, and it was interesting to me. There was a lot of stuff that I haven't really talked about it here because I have no point, but I did a lot of firearms coaching and shooting. I was a sniper platoon sergeant. Like I've done a lot of it, but I didn't make a, an obvious link to dog training while I was For sure.
0: So when he talked about, again, I don't know if we to kind of decipher, closed loop is the beginning and open loops, the end. I'm going to Google that real quickly after I have a little chat. What made me think about it is, so when he described, when you go to shoot, you don't want to be reflexive. You don't want to pull out the gun and bang, 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 because you're going to miss the person or the target. You want to be mindful about the whole experience and still be as if you're practicing where in martial arts, for example, someone throws a right hook just reflexively. You block and you strike. You don't even know you've done it. And he said, Within firearm shooting, you don't want to be in that state of mind. You want to be mindful the whole time in case, like what Glenn said, all the reactions that could happen can kind of make you flinch and miss and whatever. I was thinking actually about the dog, not so much about the person. When I call my dog to come, when he was, always give this example because it happened more recently, he was off the leash, he saw a rabbit. We never see rabbits in Monterey, but he saw one and he ran. He went and it was like very late at night. He went onto the road coming up to it. I said his name, I gave his recall and just... Boom, turned around and ran up to me and sat at my feet. Mm -hmm. You can see in his face like, why the hell did I even do that? Obviously, because he's in a reflexive action. He's Mm -hmm. classically conditioned to do that behavior. And I guess there is some operant nature of that. It's like, well, I better come, otherwise I'll get in trouble. And I clipped him on. So a lot of the times I want to aim for a reflexive behavior, but how many times should we let the dog, not just in training, but in the end result, is a dog in that closed loop where he's having to think, I'm thinking maybe like tracking or using his nose to find a scent, is he thinking methodically in that moment or is he, when he's tracking, going off reflexes? I'm going to assume that he's thinking about every sniff where it's coming from, where if he's doing, for example, agility, a lot of it may just be happening reflexively. And I just want to know, is there a difference? And I know this is like really deep in the weeds about what a dog's thinking and it may not even be relevant. I want to discuss and kind of open up how much do we want our dogs to be doing reflexive behaviours? Compared to when a dog's doing the work, can you be thinking methodically within that task? And what are the benefits of both? Because doing things reflexively may not be as stimulating as doing things methodically
2: and slowly. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, sort of. I think I understand what you're talking about. Like for me in dog training, I want to teach dogs in the lowest state of arousal that I can, because I want the dog to be thinking. I want the dog. So like, you know, you see – I'll use my own dog as an example, right, because I can speak in detail, is that for me, if I'm teaching something new, I use food to teach it because for him, he's got food drive. It's not super high, but it allows him to think clearly and he's not going to lose himself in a row. He has clarity. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. so he's actually thinking. He's not just acting within impulse, right? And then after that, I go to the ball with no string on it, just a ball that I can throw. Then it's a ball with a string. Then it's the frisbee because he's big on chasing. After that, then I use the chucket. Now, if I was to try and teach my dog anything with the chucket, I just lose clarity. It's basically gone. Now, can he do the things that he already knows how to do with the chucket? Yeah, that's how I know that he knows how to do something. Like that's essentially how I proof behaviors. Now this is absent sort of bite work because that's a different type of thing for my dog, right? The bite work becomes... It adds a new layer because the chucket has never hurt my dog. Plenty of decoys have. So now there's a a spiciness about it, right? There's a missed opportunity cost. Whereas with the chucket, if he just doesn't feel like chasing it, which has never happened in his life ever, but it just doesn't get the ball versus being run down and hurt by the ball if he doesn't, right? Which is the effect of using the decoy. So I always want to teach my dog in the lowest form of arousal that I can. For a couple of reasons first i think that the dog understands what's happening rather than just is acting out of impulse but also i want the dog using its brain in that moment like solving the puzzle because i am teaching in that moment and i want the dog to be aware of its actions rather than just doing things and finding out that it got reinforced but along the way i want to increase that level of arousal and the level of arousal i want the dog in is the level that serves me So it's not like I want the dog in high level or low level or, you know, I can't tell you where I want the dog without knowing where the dog's at in the level of training, what I'm teaching, the environment, all those kinds of things. But for me, I absolutely want the dog in the level of arousal that serves the learning process. And that starts out as lowest level of arousal at rep one and highest possible level of arousal before I can say, yes, that behavior is complete. Like, yes, that is a behavior that I can recall at any point. That is a behavior that I can say is proofed. That is a behavior that I can say I can rely upon because I will test my dog under the highest form of arousal that he has. Does that make sense? hundred percent. I guess where I'm thinking about this, and I'm always
0: thinking about the everyday person and their dog Mm -hmm. compared to the higher level of training, Mm -hmm. how many dogs are in, They get their lead clipped on, they walk to the same park, do the same exact behaviours, probably the same exact routine of training for their ball, get clipped on, come back home. That's great for that one task. What if we want to change that up a little bit? Is Mm -hmm. a dog so stuck in a looped system where he's just performing the exact same behaviours? Obviously two things can be an issue of that. One thing would be when that rabbit pops up, will he respond to your command Mm -hmm. or is he stuck in this now I'm not doing that same pattern of behaviors anymore. I'm now going to go piss off and go chase the rabbit. Mm. And then also the safety side of it, which is your dog's not like thinking. He's just going off impulses. So I guess I'm thinking about it from like a fulfillment perspective for like the everyday person. Mm-hmm. So with Chili, with my dog, I have to always, when I'm working with the ball, the frisbee, the tug, I'm always switching up my commands, always teaching you things. I switch it up from we're learning something new to, doing this like a similar sort of routine. I mm-hmm. always want to keep him thinking about doing new things and I have to obviously expand the activities I do with him. I would like to do more scent work because I feel like that's more I'm the dog is thinking for the thing rather than relying on me mm-hmm. to do the work. And I don't do heaps of free shaping myself. I think free shaping would be, have we decided is open loop the reflexive and closed loop the non-reflexive? I'm, I need to check that out. I'm actually trying to look it up now. Okay. Really I'm, I'm, pre, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> the whole sure.
1: podcast hinges on this.
0: <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure the close I'm pretty sure for when he said the closed loop was like the beginning. We're doing it slowly, methodically. There is no like reflex yet. And then the open loop is things are happening reflexively. So should we be mindful? And again, it may not even have any relevance, but the essence behind it is. I would like to free shape my dog to do certain behaviours so that he's doing the thinking for himself, more fulfilment. He mm. feels more engaged within that activity where, and I remember I had a, a situation with my dog and when I was speaking with Glenn, he was teaching me the beginning steps of how he does ascent scent work. And I had the jar, the mason jar, put the food in there and <laughs> spades went to sniff it. He went, because no, I, I, I stood still. I had the jar there. My dog's like 11 years old at the time. I gave him no input. Me giving him no input freaked him out. He didn't know what to do. He's like, mm, I must be in trouble. And he walked off and lay down. Mm-hmm. That triggered me with all my emotions. I gave this whole massive paragraph to Glenn. He wrote, <laughs> if a dog doesn't work, he doesn't get fed. I'm like, oh, you bloody idiot, overthinking it again. It didn't take very long for him to start the process, the initial steps of the scent work. I found that I helped my dog so much that in the presence of not helping him at all, in that context, anyway, he didn't even know what to do mm. where you see some other dogs, like when we're doing group class, we're doing the, the activity dogs off the lead in the basketball court, one minute down, stay, recall bed at two meter distance. And then a middle from the bed, some of the dog, like one of the dogs in particular has been doing a lot of free shaping in that context, the dog knew all the commands. But as soon as she sent him to the bed, he grabbed the witch's hat and like threw it at her. Mm -hmm. And you can see that there he's thinking on his own Mm -hmm. compared to my dog wouldn't even think about doing that because like we don't do closed-loop things. Mm -hmm. So I think it's beneficial for people that are doing training with their dogs to switch it up. Don't do the the thing that you're only comfortable with. Do the thing that's going to serve the dog but also give opportunities where he can be thinking. So like for example, and where it resonated the most is from practicing martial arts you can go to a school where people are practicing the same thing over and over again. They're all doing reflexive actions, but it's all rubbish. Mm. Like none of it looks good. Mm -hmm. Actually they all look kind of pathetic, but they feel like they're doing the best because they're doing it reflexively compared to coming back to the drawing board, go back to a closed loop where you're putting yourself under precise precision of a behavior so that it can become reflexive. again. you have to keep coming back and forth between the both so that you can continue to be sharp Mm -hmm. where we think reflexive behaviors are good, but if they're not, thing that you want you have to always come back to it and i think it's just it's it was more about like teasing the thought about should we keep our dog doing automatic things while in a training session so it's not like they're doing bad things or should we be challenging them to be doing new things as
3: well Mm. okay i'm I'm going to insert here because i think you were right and i was wrong with the initial explanation so you are forgiven (laughs) Thank you. In here, the explanation is a closed loop movement is a movement that is performed slow enough that you can stop it anywhere within the movement based on the feedback you gain while moving. Throwing requires an open loop movement that becomes automatic through repetition. Yeah, that's it. So the open loop is the... Auto-
0: yeah, open loop means it's Autonomous. now automatic. Yes. And the closed loop means that you can stop it at any time. And I yeah. guess it's important for shooting, and I guess I wanted to, whether on or off, to to discuss with you how, like, because you've done it for real, is that in that moment of taking that shot, I remember when I went hunting for the first time ever with the bow and arrow, climbed this massive mountain, I had no idea what I was doing. The compound bow was way too strong. I ended up giving, getting beside us from, like, pulling this really heavy bow back. The first shot missed... And I only had one arrow on me. My guard was next to me, but something just overcame me. I ran up to the tree, pulled my knife out, hacked the arrow out, and I just started chasing this billy goat. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm running through the bush. And there was yeah, a whole grills. there was a whole herd of these goats. This guy starts, like, jumping up on the kids are hurrying him up. And something happened. I stopped, focused, looked, pulled back, bang, and I got him right through the jugular and he, like, died immediately. We harvested him. We ate him. Everything happened perfectly.
3: Oh, is that your survival course thing? Used, that was isn't? one of, yeah, that was yeah.
0: The, the, so I did four of them, but mm-hmm. one of them was about bow hunting and like learning how to do it properly. Yeah. I just thought that was interesting. I had practice, you know, hitting the target, obviously, very little practice, but I thought there was something into that. It can't be very open loop because the thing's moving and like your heart beats racing, you're tired, you're up in the mountain, there's rocks on the ground. So you have to be thinking about every single movement you make. That's you're solely in the moment rather than going through the motions of like, for example, this could be a bad example, but rolling in jujitsu, I'm only a white belt, so I'm pretty bad at it. However, there's times where you're just doing things, and sometimes it just falls into place. You're like, "Oh, that's pretty cool," but you don't want to be winging it all the time, so you want to go back to the closed loop, refine your skill, and then hopefully make it open loop. And I like to draw those conclusions. And the last episode that I just recorded, just a very short one, talking about analogies and metaphors. And Roger Wallace, who listens to both of us and he's an awesome guy, he said, you talk about being anthropomorphic, but how do you draw the conclusion about using analogies and metaphors, which is very human related? And then he said, but then you say, pay the dog for the work that he's done. I think it's important to know the analogies so you can connect the dots so that you can then implement that within your Everyday life. And I but think the
3: analogies are for us, not for the dog. Exactly. That's not anthropomorphic when we're talking amongst ourselves. Exactly. I mean, we have to have forms and laws of communication. Otherwise, Boyd and I have been talking about this religiously, like for three weeks. He heard the podcast we did, and he is a firm believer himself. And the way that we're explaining things and the diatribe of vernacular that people are coming out with at the moment is just ridiculous. Like, the terminology is so incorrect. In so many aspects but that's why we have to use stories and analogies sometimes to try and explain something because in lots of aspects we're getting so far off the track of what is reality because people are inventing language mm-hmm. um, whereas for the dog it's mainly through trial and repetition and reward and punishment and whatever it is that the dog is learning you can be anthropomorphic to your dog but to a degree it's a lot of wasted time it makes you feel good that's the only thing in, in that Whole scenario is it makes you feel good and it makes you feel vindicated that you're a better person because you treated your dog like a little fur baby. Yeah, 100%. Do it by all means. It's yeah. not me scorning anyone. If you want to do it, go ahead and do it. But like a lot of times, it's not for the dog. It's not it? for the dog. Yeah. It's not for the dog. It doesn't do the dog any justice. I mean, they've shown evidence of animals coddling up to steel frame monkeys with a bit of wool on it. As long as they're getting warmth and nutrition from that monkey, they'll still treat it like a mother.
2: A lot it's of time- just the warmth. So that's a really those I made an experiments are really bizarre. Yes. Where the one feeds it and the other provides comfort, but really only through like a sheepskin yeah. covering. That's it. It's just softness. And when they scare it, it goes to the comfort, not the sustenance. Mm. It, it avoids the one it, – well, it doesn't avoid. It just wants nothing to do with the one that is feeding it. It goes only to the one that it finds comfortable. Like I suppose that's pretty obvious that that would be the case. You go for – like when you're scared, you go for comfort, not for food. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> like well, your, your hungry designed, or Well, not really because your
3: body is designed to shut down. You yeah. Know? Like yeah. if you read – digestion's not really well, important. Yeah. 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 If you read on and combat –
1: that's one of the first things, right? Like the dog's appetite will – goes out the window when it's stressed.
2: I think I understand your question, Panos. I think that in my opinion, I think that like it, it sort of relates to what we are saying about lowest form of arousal is that I want the dog to be learning in a closed-loop system, right, where I want the dog to be making decisions and actually choosing to do everything that it does and doing that with consciousness, right, like there's some thought behind it. Now, how much I don't know that we could go into the weeds on like anthropomorphism, but, but dogs certainly can solve puzzles. They can think that through. And that's what I want my dog to think of when I'm training something, right? Like we were just discussing before, I'm starting a new program with uh, both my dogs, actually, because why not? But I'm starting this like canine conditioning program and I've got to teach like foot targets in a way that I haven't taught them before. So it's straight to food, right? And it's straight to doing it in a way. It's actually been a bit tricky with Remy, especially because he doesn't lure and I'm luring him. And that's step one. It's just convincing him that (laughs) the food that I'm holding is not a booby trap, right? Mm -hmm. Like you should actually follow this. But I want that to happen at a level of arousal where he's thinking. And I want him making choices and being aware of all of his choices. I want him to think like, oh, my feet are or are not on this. Or, or, you know, like as I'm telling him he's good and I'm giving him a keep on going like progressive signal because one of his feet are on and not the other. I want him to think through like, hey, I'm halfway there. And in that moment, if he were to change, like if he were to change feet and put one on and take the other one off, I'm still happy with that. Like that tells me that he's making decisions, he's progressing. But by the time I want to call like a proof of behavior, like by the time I want to say, yeah, that's in my Rolodex and I can use that whenever I want. I suppose within the system that we've explained, like that's now open loop for the dog. Like I just want the dog to react. I just want it to happen and I don't want any thought process from it whatsoever. I want the dog just like reacting to the command as a reflex response and i think to relate this back again to more of the the shooting stuff is like we used to talk about it's a very common army saying i'm sure you've probably heard it but like slow is smooth and smooth is fast so we just and, and you know bart would say speed comes through understanding so there's never any rush to get the dog doing anything fast because going slow is how you can get them to do it correctly it's slow is how you bring in accuracy and we always say like speed is good but accuracy is final right? Yep. And so that's what I want along the way is that I'm more concerned that the dog is accurate in what he does rather than fast in what he does. And the speed will come when he knows what to do and he doesn't have to think about it anymore. Now he can start to react quicker. Yep. He start, he can start to be more sure of his actions because, you know, I've done it nice, slow and smooth for 150 reps and it, I haven't changed anything and it always led to reinforcement. So I don't no longer need to think about what I'm doing now. I'm just smashing through it. I'm just going on to the one thing. And then as well, once you start going into the idea of a open loop system is that you need to be at a variable schedule, right? Because you need to be going like, do this, then do this, then do this. And the reinforcer, if at all, will come at the end rather than in, like I imagine in a closed loop system within the dog's mind, he's making decisions and he's going to think, should I do this? And did I do it correctly? And that's where feedback is going to come in and be important to the dog at that point. Now that might look like feedback as like the actual reinforcer or that feedback might be progression where we sell to the dog like, Hey, yeah, that was good. Good for you. You did it. Mark but Keep going along. Right. And there's many and various ways to do that with dogs, from like a, a keep on going signal, like a marker or a word, you could do that with an e-collar. If it's been loaded that way, you could do that with some kind of tactile touch. In fact, you know, when I was at Helmet Riser a few weeks ago, one of the things that he does to show the dog, yes, you did that right there will be progression, but you're not being reinforced is this like white finger thing that he does, which is just touching the dog behind the ear for five seconds. So he walks up to the dog, touches it behind the ear and then tells it to do something else. Mm. Right. So the dog then goes, Oh, that's reinforcement. But the reinforcer, is progression. I get to do the next yep. behaviour, but you're telling me I did this one correctly. And by doing that, you stop the two behaviours becoming one behaviour. Why white finger? Well, because then he has like the black hand. So he talks about the contrast within it, right? Okay. So, so there's the white finger, which tells the dog he's right. And then the black hand, which, which is the correction, telling the dog you were incorrect, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's white and It's part of his colour scheme. Yeah, it's white and black because like the, it's the contrast between the two.
3: To fill people in who are listening to this, because I believe this is important, otherwise I'll miss out on the conversation. And I wasn't there, but I've been part of the conversation with Pat and with Boyd and several other people. So Helmet Razor is very much into color systems to describe the feelings and thoughts that a
2: dog is. Yeah, so he going uses he uses system. a color uh, he uses a color system, and I've heard him on podcasts. I've heard him talk about this, and he just uses those words. And like I was like, what is he talking about? And it wasn't until I was at the event with him and he explains it, and I'm sure he wouldn't have an issue with me explain. Not like it's proprietary or anything, and but. And I'm not gonna go into the detail that he did. He like a green You can do a course with him if you wanna learn it. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. But like a anything that goes into the category of prey and he puts food and anything that is really appetitive to the dog is green, right? So it's a green attraction. Anything that is defense, anything that is driven by conflict is grey orange is open where it's just like the dog can do whatever it wants and feels free to do so. And then locked into any sort of behavior via not necessarily compulsion, but but conflict is blue for the dog to see. Yeah. Well, no, no for the dog. It's just how he just, he just has these words and, and using those words allows him to then if we, me and you don't speak English, if you don't speak the same language as me, then we only need the translator to help us so much as understanding those five or six words. And then I can tell you, if I'm the decoy and you're the handler, I can tell you what I want from the dog. I can say green, I can say blue, I can say orange, I can say these different things. And all that does is tell them like, where's the mind of the dog at now, the critique of that. And you can break those things further down. Like he just, when he says pray in green, you know, it's food and it's chasing. It's everything that the dog might want. And, of course, you could break those in a certain things, but that doesn't help in the moment when you're yelling that color at somebody in order to get them to <laughs> yeah. affect the dog correctly. And same as defense. Like you can put a defense into a million different categories. A dog can feel very powerful in defense. A dog could be terrified in defense. You know, it could be either one of those things. It doesn't matter because that would be relevant to the situation. We're dealing with a fearful dog and I said that he's gray. You would know that he's scared. Whereas if we're doing bite work and I tell you like I want the dog gray, that would mean that we're getting like a defensive aggression because he like is pushing something away powerfully. Right. So breaking it down any further is not helpful for sure within that system. So having those color schemes really helps. But the one thing that sort of relates to what we're talking about here is the white finger part where it is telling the dog, yeah, you did the right thing. Don't link the next thing to this. You successfully completed that behavior. The best example I can think of, and you know, it came up many times in the seminar, is like a down. So your dog is successfully downing. He downs well. You return to the dog. Now we always have this issue when we do that over how do we reinforce? Because many times I need the dog. Like in competition, almost always you know, pull the dog back into a sit. In most sports, in the long down, you return to the dog. It's going to be a sit, and then you take up the leash and heel away. You can never do that in training because now the dog is going to anticipate that. So now maybe you pay on the way back. You see people even will pay in the long down like with their back to the dog. They'll just throw the ball over their head, give the marker. They'll pay on the walk back. They'll pay in all these different places. They randomize. Yeah. Trying to randomize while doing that, you can mitigate the likelihood of the dog drawing those two behaviors together by the white finger. So you return to the dog and you go into that heel position and you push him, you know, just touching him in a particular way that indicates, Hey, that behavior is over. You did it good. I'm happy. And I'm going to ask you for another thing. And that progression is reinforcement. You are reinforcing, you are maintaining the down. The dog is more likely to do it and will do it next time. Right? Like that's, you know, reinforcement but he's not going to blend the two together. He's not going to say, well, when you return to me, it's going to be a sit. It's going to be after you give me the white finger, there'll be another command and that might be the sit. And And so he
0: may be in a closed loop in that. Yeah,
2: well, I absolutely want him in a closed loop in that moment because I want him thinking, right? I want him like making decisions. I want him within our definition of closed loop, as Glenn said, like I want the dog able to change his mind, right? Like I want the dog to perhaps anticipate oh, here comes a sit, but I haven't heard the command yet, and so I won't do it. And so you probably wouldn't know that the dog thought that, Or here it comes, because he didn't do it, right? Mm. But the issue would be if you were too quickly into that open loop, then he would anticipate it because he's on autopilot at that moment, right? He's starting to read the play and doing the next thing. I
0: guess to answer the questions, all come back to me now, how did I connect this to, like, dog training, is that if the best-performing shooter is in a closed-loop system while doing the thing that he has to do, we would assume he's in an open loop because he's done it so much he's so reflexive at it but he's keeping himself in a closed loop to do the shot mm. and if he's an expert at the thing in a closed loop where you think he'd be learning then does that apply to dog training in terms of any other skill and i'm pretty much in a in a bit of a category of teaching obedience training working on reactive dogs aggressive behavior i'm not always challenging myself in the in the state of like sport training, tracking, doing, you know, bite work and things like that where maybe it'd be different to what I'm seeing on a day-to-day basis. And I thought it'd be interesting to see, is a dog doing a particular skill and I thought maybe tracking or using his nose because I haven't got much experience in that. Is a dog in an open loop system when he's looking for the thing or is he in a closed loop because he's focusing and it could change at any moment when he's off to do his own thing, looking for the bad guy?
2: I think that depends on the dog and Mm. and I think that depends – the breed, the bloodline, the yeah, imprinting, the all those different things, right? Mm. So I'm in love with dog training again at the moment. And a lot of that has to do with this bully that I'm I'm spending a lot of time with, right? And at the moment, I hardly see him. I'm only training like I think I got one session in this week and it's like 10 minutes. A do session. you think about him? i do i do though because he's a fucking challenging dog like so in my i've trained a lot of dogs and many to a fairly high standard and i've been a part of the training to numerous dogs to a very very high standard right but all of those have been malinois shepherds Mm. or like springers or something like Mm. that right like something that is designed to be to be trained that way Mm. While I've trained tons of dogs and different breeds, it's always, you know, pet dog training is to fix a problem or it's to, you know, get the dog loose leash, like just the basic training stuff, like nothing that I would call very impressive and technical training. And this is the first time I've tried to do that to a dog not designed to receive those inputs it's really interesting to me because he just wants the ball, man. Like he wants to engage with me and he wants the game. And so like I'm teaching through play. It's I've I've not, I am going to use food. I've kind of come to the realization that I'm not going to get away with, especially the way that I want the behaviors to go with him. And some of the things that I want to teach him, I've realized, uh, I can't do this just through the ball. Like it's not going to work out. Right. Why is that? I can't communicate in the level of detail that I want to communicate. I want to start shaping. I haven't shaped anything. I've kind of, yeah, like it's, I mean, I have, but it's been like with the toy lure, that kind of stuff, right? I think the way that I described that too, because I
3: had those difficulties with Randy, is the ball can be very macro where food can be very micro. Yeah, totally. It reduces the incremental stages that you're working with Mm a dog because Randy's very much the same. Like if you pull the ball out, and I made the mistake at the start, because I wasn't really thinking about the sciences at the time. I was just thinking, this is what I want. He's very ball-driven. I'm going to get everything through the ball. Mm. And to a degree you can. You can shape some behaviours through there. But what I found with him was he would start being romantic about the ball and anticipating the ball all the time where it started to impact his behaviour in a negative fashion. So instead of me being able to get these delicate positions or these nice little incremental positions, he was literally hitting it like a sledgehammer. Yeah, I, was thinking where I sledge needed thinking sledgehammer
1: versus a scalpel.
3: Well, was, right? I, I wanted knitting needle. Yeah. He was giving me sledgehammer. Yeah. Mm. When you wise up about these sort of things and realise, no, this is not the way to do it, I need the finesse of a knitting needle now. Mm. I need to go back to food and I need to do it where it doesn't create that conflict with that so much arousal that the dog is thinking, ball, 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 ball is life. That's a big problem for a lot of people because they insist on using the reinforcer that they think is appropriate at the time Mm. because they've lost touch with what a primary reinforcer
2: is or selective and appropriate reinforcer for what you're doing at that time. You know, sort of where I was going with that in line with exactly what you're saying, Glenn, is that dog – Just wants the conflict. Like, that's what he's into. And that's the training with him all started because, you know, I'm looking to fix dog aggression issues. All I wanted was to have a viable way to reinforce a dog, right? Like, that's really was like, hey, no amount of pressure will stop the dog aggression within that type of dog that really has it a proper game dog. And so I need another tool, and that is leverage of positive reinforcement and as well as biological fulfillment. There's a lot to talk about that. That's a whole podcast in and of itself. But the dog now in training him, he just wants that ball, right? So he's like, I want the fight. That's typical, but what I have realized now that I've decided like, okay, I want some precision in the work that he does like, because I want him to be much more aware of himself and I want him to be much more in tune with what he's doing rather than major muscle movements. Exactly as you say, I don't want the macro. I want to start looking at micro. I can't do that with just the toy. I can't really do that. I can't. Like I'm sure there's but, people that can, but, but their brains some of their brains just aren't wired to think that way. No, but either. that's exactly it, right? Mm. And so when I train most Malinois, for example, by the time you're teaching them stuff, the ball or the toy or or the food even is almost just stress relief. So Mido wants to solve the puzzle. Remy is a, a, he loves to learn. You know, an example, I was just talking about this with Kevin Lai during the week is that he's injured all the time. I haven't even brought him today to do work, right? I think he might've broken his foot again, right? But anyway, last month when he's been out here for the two weeks, the first two weeks of the month, I brought him and he's injured. I don't want to risk him like aggravating his groin injury that he has, But he needs to be fulfilled in one way or another, right? So I would just put him on the table and I'm training a bunch of new decoys. So he got tons of bite work, right? He's just on the table in a way where he can't, he's clipped up by the collar. He can't injure himself any further and he can bite to his heart's content. The problem is 20 minutes later, it's like it never happened, right? He's totally unfulfilled. And when I get him off the table, yes, he's exhausted, but he's not happy because he likes to bite. He likes to bite people. He's really into that. But that isn't what he's yes. built to do. That's not what's important to him. So for the last two weeks, when I would bring him, we would do obedience. We go back to doing like really strict obedience. I want him to heal in a very particular way. I want him to do retrieves. Or what like one of the things that you know I've been working on is taking things off of decoys. So like if a decoy has a stick in his hand, and rather than not that this will ever be assessed, but it's just something I like to teach. Or I did enjoy teaching him is like take something out of that decoy's hand. That's a fucking hard thing to teach a dog to do, right? That kind of stuff. Then when I gave him bites, I had to pick him up by the collar and like literally walk him and staple him onto the decoy. The biting was short because now he's in like a stretch position. I didn't want to leave him there for very long much happier dog at the end of it and the dog goes home and is satiated like and is easier to live with and is happy because he got to solve the puzzle he was yeah. he likes to be squished in the box of like as Helmut riser would explain it as blue like he likes to be trapped in those behaviors and he likes showing me look how good i'm doing the things look i'm doing the things and he likes being challenged he likes getting things wrong every now and again he likes like being in a flow state of only getting things right like 80 percent of the time mm. and i set him up to like challenge him i get to the point where where I'm not certain he's going to do this. And because I'm a balanced trainer, because he like has all the tools, he is very in tune with when he makes mistakes, I can make him correct. And then you can see the dog, like, give me another shot at that. I want to do that again. I want to try that again. So that helps with training because he wants to learn. Right. And the way that I think about it is by the time the dog is trained now in training, it's kind of like initial steps. It's quite different. But now with that dog, when I pay him, It's stress relief, the payment. It's not even really like technically, you know, who knows how we put this, what category we put this into, whether it's positive reinforcement or negative reinforcement, who knows, right? That's a different conversation. And we're probably not even using those terms correctly. But what I know is that when I give him the reinforcer, the ball, the toy, the food, the bite, whatever it is, that is really just communication to him of what you did was correct. And he's like, oh, I got it. I solved the puzzle. I'm making progress. I'm doing the thing. That's how his brain works. That is not how that fucking bully's brain works, let oh. me tell you. Right? Yeah, like yeah. He's like, hey, man, you got the ball and I want it. Give it to me. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and, and even getting to an indirect reward with that bully was hard. Like Just getting to the point where I was like, I have it in my hand and I need you to walk away from me. Right? Like I need you to turn your back on me and go to a marker board that's only three meters away, but you know full well I have the ball and when you get to that marker board and look back at me i will give it to you just doing that with him was way harder than it's been with any other dog that isn't hasn't got pointy ears right because yeah. he's like hey, that's you have the ball why would i go over there when you have it yeah. here all i want is that whereas the point of your dogs are like, "No, I want to I want to solve the puzzle." And and you will tell me I have solved the puzzle by giving me the ball, whereas that dog's like, "Give me that ball." Yeah. Right? This and is you your have sister's to- dog, right? Yeah. What prompted her
1: to get that much of a dog?
2: Uh, well, he wasn't that much of a dog. Mm. That was the thing. So uh, he was just a little mush, cute little puddly. He turned into that much of a dog, which is why he's At now what my age? dog. Like 18 months. Mm. Yeah. So he's been a lot, but, and the dog aggression was there from the jump. All right. But there was kind of not much other drive and now it's all there. I haven't done bite work with him yet. That's going to happen in the next few weeks. Cause like, I want to see like, so that's why I'm not saying he's going to be my competition dog or anything. But I, what I am for sure enjoying is the process of training because it's so hard. This is a really important conversation
3: on many different levels for a lot of different reasons. It got me thinking about a conversation I saw in a reel that a dog trainer put up on Instagram probably about a month ago. It went along the lines of stop turning up to people's house with your well-trained two and a half years into it, Malinois yeah. and tricking them into thinking. They can have the same thing. They can have the same thing. Yeah. Like at the time I was sort of thinking, yeah, 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 rant, rant, rant. But then I realised along the lines of the story that you're telling, it's very correct because they don't have the dog with the brain waves that your dog, the dog that you just trained, nor will they train it that way. Like they'll never fall into that. I shouldn't say never. Rarely will mm. they fall into that enthusiast category where they will go, my life is switching into full-time dog training, weekend dog training, pursuing dog training, dropping all my mates and becoming a dog training groupie with a bunch of dog training people, which is effectively what other people do.
2: That's our entire audience that have done that. I I agree, but it's not our clients. Yeah, yeah, that's
3: right. And this is is why it's an important conversation for our clients because if you want to become a, a better dog trainer, you can't teach them the same way you learned about your own dog. Mm. It's like going into a classroom and saying, all of you students, you're going to be A achievers, mm. and then teaching them the same way and realising some of these kids have learning deficiencies. Mm. They can't learn the same way. you know. And that's why that conversation about your bully is so important and, and people have really got to take that on board because that dog approaches life and thinking about life and reinforcement in a totally entirely different, different category and a really than what Remy or good. Val does or Randy or Mando or whoever. So we do ourselves an enormous disservice by insisting that the way that we've trained our dog and that obsessive, enthusiastic mindset, not that there's anything wrong with that. I'm not attacking people for saying that. It's just... It is a form of deception when they pull that dog out. Now, if you pull it out and say, this is my dog, and this is the routine that I spend weekly training this dog, and this is what I've achieved over two and a half years, and it is a discipline. The reason I'm showing you this is because this is a Belgian Shepherd or a Shepherd or a Roddy or anything like that. It's a very high-drive dog, and what I'm showing you is my Michelangelo, what I've crafted from a dog that if I didn't do this, It could be notoriously bad behaved. It could be, you know, a bunch of things, but – It's a little different than your dog and I need to know what limitations you have around training. What are you going to do? How much training are you going to commit to your dog? How much are you going to put forward to it? Once you sort of establish that, then you can say, okay, so what is this? And you said it in the last podcast, Remy's your business card. Yeah. Fine, good. It's not about tricking people and saying, oh, this is what you're going to get. We're going to do a session a week or two sessions a week. You're going to do fuck all training yourself and you're just going to have this dog. What they need to know is you can have something like this in the ballpark of it if you commit to what I committed to. And if you don't, you won't get that. You'll get a lesser version of that and that's completely up to you. It's like when people show me abs. I know that – you know, at one stage in my life, I could probably have a nice six-pack. The problem is cake is fucking
1: delicious. Exactly right. So
3: I know that I could improve my own health and well-being and I could look much, much better if I did the same obsessive workouts that they did in the gym every night, eating steamed chicken breast and broccoli, you know, and basically going through a life of sufferance and discipline. Fine. Mm. Nothing wrong with that. All power to them. I admire those people for doing it. But when they get on TV and they get one, like, bendy device and, and pretend that that's where they got their abs from, <laughs> yeah. fuck you people. Yes. I was you know? listening
1: to a podcast on the way up here. It was um, Diary of a CEO, Stephen Bartlett. Right? I actually really like it. And he had Hormozzi on, of all people. Right? Oh, yeah. and had who on? Hormo- Alex, Alex Hormozzi. Uh,
2: other people don't know who that yeah. is. So Alex Hormozzi is probably a billionaire in maybe. the other
1: world that I know, Pat in the, yeah. the so sales Alex,
2: sniper world. Alex he Tomozzi is, yeah. like, he's super jacked and he launched, he had a business called gym launch. So he, he, he had a gym. What he got really good at was getting people into gyms. Right. And so he had, okay. he had a business that would start like you have your own gym he would fill it for Teach you. Teach how to do yeah. it. Basically. And he gets yeah. basically everybody, all his new members first month, right? And yeah. then disappears on you and goes to the next place and does it. And then he's grown that into a giant that's an app now that people get called Gym Launch. He sold that for I think eighty million dollars yeah. or something like nice. that. Yeah. But still owns part of it. And he is now a like he's <laughs> like a business mogul guy. Yeah. But he's like in his mid twenties. Nah, he's
3: thirty two. Oh, is he yeah, yeah, thirty right. two? Okay. He yeah, yeah. so, sounds like
2: a sort of a Dan Blitzen sort of dude. Yeah, it's sort mm-hmm. of. That. But For me and Luke who know him from like South Sniper stuff, he will be a bigger household name in in time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's on his way.
1: And he said a line which when I heard it just reminded me of NEPQ, like Jeremy Martin. He said, change happens when the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of the change, right? Mm -hmm. So like before that, nothing will change. So it's like if you want a well-behaved dog, you want a well-trained dog, well, the pain of having the not well-trained dog by definition has to be greater than the pain of having the well-trained dog or the pain of not having the abs has to be greater than Doing what it takes to have it. Mm. Otherwise yeah, you'll never do it, it. it.
3: It's got to be an internal shift. Mm. You can have people ridicule you for being overweight or not having a well trained dog or whatever it is. And they can literally pound you with mm. insults of whatever category. It's only until you decide mm. for whatever reason it is, what you're running to or running from. Yep. And I agree exactly. Pressure I-
1: is external and tension is internal. That's what that is as well, right? Mm. So it's mm. like, yes, you have to have you have to come to that decision.
3: Yeah, that's yourself. a good saying. I like that. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Mm. I'm going
0: to segue to the other thing that I wanted to discuss was after going to the seminar, JJAX, a week and a half ago, there was a couple of things, because there was a couple of my clients that have attended, they do GRC training as well. And some of the advice I said to them, because I saw him at group class like five days later and she was like, oh, I don't
2: even know what to do
0: anymore. And I'm like, ah. And I said to her, take five things, write down five things you learned from it and just try to implement it within the next month. Don't try to rebuild your whole structure of training. I don't know how it feels, the paralysis of analysis, because quite to the contrary, we want to be better. We want to learn more. But when you try to take on so much, especially in two days, you know, eight hours a day of learning, I've gone to like 30 seminars or 20 something seminars. So I remember when I, and I remember clearly after um, Forrest and Josh came out, the week of, after they finished, I was like, I'm no good. I'm doing it all wrong. I need to change everything. And that was like super uncomfortable because, first of all, it's just, it's limiting my growth. It's not, it's hindering it, not adding to my growth. And also, of course, maybe I can overthink. I think everyone that listens to me probably knows me as an overthinker. So I can paralyze myself. But I really find that after seminars, you can be inspired to do so much stuff but then you change all this stuff when you're training your dog. Your dog's looking at you going, what the fuck are you doing now? The
3: problem is, Panos, is it's not inspiring to your clients who are still at a lesser volume than what you are. Yeah. We had a really good training night with all the Canine Evolution staff the other night. We had people interstate that had to dial in and we had all the local teams here. We were talking about a very similar aspect. I went back to the millimetre, centimetre, metre concept and then I said to him, here it is in basic concept – If you should be in millimetre but you're still insisting on being in a centimetre aspect, when you should have been in a millimetre, you're 90% wrong to the recipient and that's the fucking problem. You're 90% wrong. That's how far you've travelled away from where understanding was lost 90% ago. So at that 10% point where the two of you had some cohesion and you could actually mind meld over what you're trying to deliver to that person. You lost them 90 fucking percent ago. I remember I did exactly the same thing as you did. I remember when I was a kid I went to a KNPV seminar that came to Melbourne. Boyd and me and a bunch of people went. My eyes shot open. I loved it. I thought it was great. But then I started adapting their phrasing, their terminology, their insistence upon doing certain things to clients. This was a real low point for me because I could start to see a real negative downturn in people's retention of wanting me to come back and do lessons with them because they didn't get it because in truth, neither did I. I lost my way and I'd lost the importance of translation to somebody who would never use that. They have no reason to even want to go there. Now for me to develop my own skills and understanding and, and to gently tweak that out, that's great. I employ anybody in the professional training industry. If you're not doing personal development of some sort, reading a book, going to a seminar, networking with your peers and so forth. Like seriously, you, you're really going to do yourself a disservice for yourself. But the same could be said, like myself, like if you just take this jumbled creation of something that you've had such a, a tiny partition of and such a slim understanding of it, and yeah, you might get some of it, but again, your client's not going to really... Until you have really learned to integrate it well and explain it in such a simplified form, and I think Bill Gates and a few of these people who who were doing a mentoring session said that same sort of category, unless you can break it down to explaining it to a five-year-old and then realising where the difficulty is in that conversation and how to then tease that and rip and tear that apart until that then can become part of the five-year-old conversation, it's not really beneficial to anybody all you're doing is trying to sound impressionable and intelligent but the the minutes of the meeting were basically missed. Mm-hmm. You're putting your audience to sleep because mm-hmm. they just don't understand and they're not gonna follow through. And in in fact, the problem is not putting them to sleep, the problem is you're intimidating. Confusing them, them as well. You're intimidating and confusing them. And that is a wretched thing to do as an instructor or a teacher mm-hmm. and somebody who's this, is supposed to create and mentor minds, you're destroying them. You're teaching them to be intimidated by you. I think you that as a is teacher. the mark
1: of a good teacher as well, as someone who can explain like a really complicated thing to a five year old. Yeah. You know, and if you, it's like you're the filter between what's really complex and what, like, someone on day
3: one should be able to understand. Oh, funny thing about that, that's a cool one. Years ago, this is years and years ago, when I was still in Melbourne, I had a school contact me and wanted me to bring in a detection dog. It was a primary school, and they just wanted me to do a talk on it for the kids and show the dog doing a basic search. And I took my mate, he was from the army at the time, he was in counter-terrorism and blah, blah, blah. He was doing something along the lines of that but with explosive and he came along to sort of educate us and build our knowledge on it. He was sitting in the back watching me do it. He said, can I give you some constructive criticism? I said, sure, man. He goes, really good demonstration. He goes, but you don't know how to talk to kids, do you? (laughs) And I thought, I don't. Because he said... You were talking to them like they're university people and he said, and all they wanted to do was pat the dog. (laughs) (laughs) And and then I realised I missed the point. I missed the point of what I was there for. Like I could have made it really basic and fun and talked to the kids in a really basic format but I kind of went in there and I switched into teacher mode and I thought, "No, nah, I've got to make a really good day of this and impress the teacher. The teacher I'll show could, these five-year-olds. Well, the, the, teacher, <laughs> the teacher couldn't give a fuck. They just wanted something to calm the kids down and yeah. give them something yeah, to look exactly. at. And all they were asking me about, like, what does the dog eat? I'm going, dog food. Because for me, I was kind of thinking, aren't you interested in what I'm doing here? They just wanted to pat a dog.
1: It was either they're going to invite you in or the local fire station, mate.
3: (laughs) Well, I just think sometimes we miss the point in in some of the ways that we want to communicate to people sometimes and it really, it's a lesson to behold for the instructor themselves if they're ready to
2: receive it. I think our role as dog trainers though is to solve the problem. And, And so you first have to understand what the problem is and that comes down to asking (laughs) and actually sort of interrogating like what is it why getting to the actual cause of it and then coming up with a plan to solve the problem in in a way that is doable by the person and that template for me that's what I think of and I deal with everybody from average pet dog owner to people who are competing at a really high level and are coming to me for, to try and squeeze half a point out of something, right? Because they're like, Hey, I heard you might have a a technique that will help my dog not react in the tiny flinch that he has when someone throws a can curtain in front of him, right? Like that might be one of the things that I do. And then the next client might be the dog barks at people walking down the street, you know? So like understanding the problem and then that determines how you're going to solve it, right? Yeah, exactly like right. rather than saying like, oh, I know the path to solving the problems is via, you know, my, my very detailed understanding of behavioral science and operant conditioning, classical conditioning, ethology, putting the whole thing together – for some people, that's really good. That's totally what they're into and they're ready to have that conversation. In fact, that's why they've started the conversation. And for others, they're like, mate, some guy I know gave me your phone number and you're here <laughs> because like I've got an issue with my dog and I only want that issue fixed. I'm absolutely not interested in spending more than I absolutely need to on solving this problem. And I think that's our job is to get to the bottom of that and and, and understanding for ourselves our own training is solving a very different problem to what our clients' problem, right? Because we are training for training's sake. That's why I was saying before to you know come back around is that I train my own dogs for training's sake. Yeah, Valerie is old, right? My own personal dogs that are mine. Valerie's old and isn't going to do anything, right? She's my pet, but I still train her all the time, right? Like right. she's doing the same program as Remy at the moment because why not? I enjoy doing it as much as she it's enjoys still, doing and it.
3: And it's beneficial for you. You've got, you've
2: got a canvas it's to paint practice, on. It's all practice, right? Yeah. And whereas like I'm training that bully for training's sake. Yeah. Like the, the problem that he had is long fixed. That's long fixed. Now I'm just doing it because I enjoy doing it. And so the majority of my clients, if they fit into two categories, one is that they just enjoy doing it and they're going to compete, but the other is it's their job, right? Mm-hmm. So like a lot of, you know, probably 50-50 is my work between people who, and their job is Interesting as well, because some of them work the dog for a job and others are trainers that are teaching other people for a job, right? So having to get to the idea of like, okay, where are you going with this? Like, and what are you going to do with that information? Now I have to be able to modulate how I provide that information. And maybe it's like, hey, well, don't let him be in the front yard. (laughs) Like that could be right. like, don't allow that to happen. All the way down to like, okay, we're going to do like a six-week program of conditioning this, Mm. then this, then this, then this. And you've got to be able to look at that and go, oh, you're the person that needs to hear this or you're the person that needs to hear that. And you can only do that when you understand both. One of the things we see, especially people who will do one of the big-name schools, and they're really into it and they probably understand it well enough to do it. But then when it comes time to answer questions about it, they can't because their knowledge of it is sufficient to do but not to teach. Mm -hmm. And we see that all the time when people say, you know, they question them and questioning them is fair because some of the things that the big schools do is outside of the norm. And that's why it's behind a paywall, right? Like you've got to pay to get that information, when you say oh, i do this and people go oh can you explain that to me and you just say the same thing louder <laughs>
0: right?
2: like you're not you're not ready to teach it right yeah, or yeah, yeah. or you probably have an understanding of it where you can do but you might come unstuck when like something happens that's outside of the realm of normal, right? So like, you know, I have been educated that step, it goes step one, step two, step three, step four. But if there's a step one and a half, I'm in trouble because nobody taught me about that. Right. And so I, as a trainer, I might be able to just sort of bluff my way through that and figure it out in the moment. But chances are that same person can't explain to you what to do because there's an element of skill involved in the doing, but there's a completely different element of skill involved in the explaining. Yes. That makes sense.
0: 100%. Absolutely. Entirely. And from the seminar perspective, it's more about you want to be humble enough to take in new information and not have so much of an ego going, I know it all. I don't need to go any seminars. I don't need to learn anything new. The problem with like it's good to be humble to bring things in. If you are too much humility to be like, oh, I always have to learn more, then you're not crediting yourself to what you know and then you can cripple yourself by going, well, I just heard someone else say something that I thought I knew if you don't know that they're saying the same thing in a different way, you're like, I need to change everything. And I think yeah. from the trainer's perspective, you don't want to cripple yourself, you want to add on to yourself. So take things on baby steps. Like, you know, write your things down, implement within a month or two into whatever work that you do, however you you dog train, if it's just for your own dog or if it's training clients, but add on to what you have. Don't just shut everything down. I think that's one thing that I've learned big time from seminars and I think I put that into other areas of life. Like, you know, I like to work out my body, but I'm not closed to just, we only do it this way. You want to be open enough to be functional, especially as you get older, things are changing. So I think as a trainer, you're the one who's absorbing information to put it out there, but to in the pursuit of learning stuff, you don't want to learn less from it. Do you know what I mean? Does that make
3: sense? I think if you sort of break down the benefits of going to a seminar, it should be to create awareness And also to directly talk to the person whose system that you've gone in there to learn. You actually get to meet them. You get to have like a tapas of what capable of delivering. Mm -hmm. You get, if you're lucky, you get to bring your dog out, which is, it's only an introduction to what they've actually got. Then if you're interested in it, then you can look at pursuing it further, which is what you must do. You know, like you must look at at pursuing it further and saying, now I've got the taste of it, now I've had the entree, now I really need to invest in the main course. We're still at the tapas stage. We're still at getting a tiny little morsel, a a tiny little taster. Now I've got to really decide, is this where I want to go? I like the style of the presenter, the instructor, the teacher, whoever you want to call them. I love their style. I love their format. I love the new information they're bringing out. After that, then you've got to say, well, I do love it. I want to pursue it. Then I need to become a student of that person Mm. and dedicate you to their teachings rather than – You know, it's like that Katy Perry song, Baby, You're a Firework. You know, I know people whose brains are fucking, you know, like they go up and then they just explode. And then they're all over the place, scattered like a firework. They just can't focus. They have no single purpose in life. At that point in time, they're everywhere. They want to collect a bit of this and a bit of that. And that's why they become so confused and even in conflict with their own thoughts because they just don't know what they want to do. They're in this system, they're invested in that system who are usually diametrically opposed to each other. Mm-hmm. Even though there's similarities, it's many systems that are actually designed to contrast each other mm-hmm. and it's or conflict, be in conflict with each other. That's what I'm trying to say. And that is the difficulty of what happens when people go off on too many tangents because they're trying to find themselves, they're trying to find out what they actually want to do Whereas I think they they get so overwhelmed and so overworked with it, they forget about enjoying it. They've lost purpose in enjoying what they're actually doing and what they're delivering. And I think that's a sad point for anybody to just remove the dog training out of it, anything, yeah. because you feel like you're a lost child when you're doing that. That's when I talk to people and they start getting imposter syndrome and they start feeling shit about it. And this is not by any means. We're not talking about people who don't have talent and shouldn't be teachers. We're talking about people who do have talent and should be teachers but they're just so confused with all the mixed information that's coming into their head. Do you think that
0: kind of ties in a little bit to what we were speaking before we started recording about we're developing armies but we should be developing an empire? If you're out there like myself, I don't really have, like I'm basically a one-man show. I have people help me from here and there but I'm doing my thing. If you're not part of a greater community trying to, aim for, towards the same thing. You can feel lost when we should be together trying to help each other, build each other up, not have this scarcity mindset of we're competing against, against each other.
3: That's a long and very layered rabbit hole where mm. we're getting into that conversation. Sure. And it's probably, it's a good conversation, but we're kind of near the wind up. 100%. Um, <laughs> no, 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 and and started, well, that conversation <laughs> is a, like I said, it's a good one about, getting more cohesion in this industry amongst each other. And that's where empire building has to come involved in it. That's a bit of a cliffhanger to leave everybody on, but it's just too big a conversation no, sure. to have because that's probably at least half an hour to 45 minutes totally. to sort of rip that in into gear. But I guess to finish it off, I think it's
0: important to be thinking about the greater picture. Don't be thinking about just yourself.
3: I just want to jump in there quickly because Pat talked about it. Luke talked about it. You talked about it in your own way. But every great instructor around the world in different philosophies, whether it be Bruce Lee or Stevie Ray Vaughan, I I remember introducing a concept or a thought that he had about learning guitar better and Bruce Lee's indoctrination of martial arts, they all say the same thing. Start slowly, learn the technique and then add speed to it later on. Like if you listen to them, if you listen, if you really listen, that's what they say. Slow down. Take your time, learn the technique, love the technique, make the technique and then you're into open loop territory because you now know the technique. You know, like while you're developing yourself and you're in closed loop, you can say, cool, I'm learning this, I'm learning the actions around it, but then you learn it and you feel good about it, then you're ready to move on. That's you perfect. know, you can, you're can ready to build and go upwards because foundations are being set or floors are being generated and they're stable, they're structured, it's proven. You know, it's there. You can actually see that it's ready to go up to the next process. But that's what we – we're all greedy. We all want it now. And we're really indoctrinated into that world, I think, where we're getting everything super fast and Mm -hmm. we're getting our way super fast, but nobody's ready for it. And the best people that I've learned from and the best people that I've surrounded myself with when I listen to what they're saying and when I'm paying attention to their learnings and their teachings as well, is they all say in their own way, slow down, slow down, learn to love it, take your time, when it feels right, when it feels autonomous, then move forward. You're ready to notch up from that point in time. I get so fucking cranky with myself even now, now that I'm a little bit more sensible and my maturity is kicking in more, when I realise that I'm doing this, when I watch a dog training technique and then I try and emulate it and I realise... Fuck, that's five steps ahead of where I'm at at this point in time. I need to break it down and really find my footing in the beginnings of this so I can go forward and then I can emulate what I saw that instructor do. And it doesn't matter what I do. You could talk about anything that you put in my hands. I must learn it until I'm comfortable to move
2: forward. Otherwise, it's going to be an absolute shit show. I agree. I think all advanced work in any area – is just looking in higher resolution of the details of the basics. Yep. That's super relevant in dog training. It, it was relevant in that what started this whole podcast with the, the shooting guy. At basic training in the Army, you learn these marksmanship principles. There's four of them. It's like how to shoot, basically. And it's printed like your Army notebook has it written on the back. You're meant to know these things, right? And then you just joined the army. It doesn't matter whether you're going to be a cook, right? You got to learn these marksmanship principles. It's part of it. Many years later, I went on to a really advanced shooting course. And it was just the marksmanship principles. Yeah. Like it was just the same Is thing. Is that
3: like stance, breathings, trigger, pressure, yeah, pretty trigger much. sight? Yeah. Like yeah.
2: it's position yeah. hold, firm enough to support the weapon, yeah. uh, must point naturally at the target without undue physical effort, aiming must be correct, shot must be released and followed through without disturbance of the position. Yeah. And so you'd learn those in like an hour-long lesson when you start. And then later when I did a really very advanced course – it was a week on each one. Yeah, right. Right? It's more of the it's, basics. It's just more of the basics, but yeah. understanding it at a, a higher resolution. Yeah, and yeah. it's, the same, it's, way it's the, the same in dog training. Dog it's training. The, like, yeah, it's the same in dog training. It's the Silim Yeah. All we have is, you know, we have like understanding ethology and how dogs think. We have operant conditioning. We have classical conditioning. And like, that's it. You can solve all the problems with that. There really isn't anything else to know. You just then have to then go, okay, like with this specific behavior that I want to teach – How's the dog think about that? Right. Like how's like, let's go into a dog's point of view. Let's talk ethology, Okay. How's he going to feel about this whole situation? How am I going to mark and re and how am I going to communicate with the dog? Right. And how am I going to make it more likely to happen? And those are all like, and it doesn't matter whether you're solving a problem, making a behavior. It doesn't matter. The only things you need to know are all the same, but you just have to go into more detail and more resolution. And the difference between a person who is able to teach the basics and then a person who is able to get extreme precision is just more of the same, right? Like just understanding and and really thinking through at a finer level the same things. It's just the same stuff. Have you fulfilled yourself, Penny Ortiz? <laughs> I am here with the brothers and I am fulfilled
0: already. Yes, okay. I am. I had a good time. Thank you. you.
2: you. You've ticked the box, Luke. You're, yes. you're okay I'm good. with this? I'm good. Yeah. All
0: right. Tell us about your podcast before you do the wrap up. Listen to us at Life With Your Dog. We try to release something once a week. Sometimes things happen, but that's where you can find us. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook,
3: NP Dog Training or Nutris Pooches. And Luke? Kizuna K9. K-I-Z-U-N-A K9. Hey, before we wrap up on that, on the Life With Your Dog podcast, the episode that you did with Jay, mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, bro. I thought that was one of your defining moments on your podcast for me. Thanks, I bro. really enjoyed that episode. Me it was too. Just, it was a good episode. I like the questions that you put to Jay. I just love the philosophy about it. I'm a bit of a fan of Jay's anyway. I yep. like the way he is a philosopher is of the life through his eyes and experiences, but I like the way that you teased it out of him too and just the way that the two of you were sort of – integrating together
0: the way that we think i think yeah. there's a there, there was something that can and that was the first time i ever spoke yeah, it was great to him it was ever, a really so.
3: it was a really good episode Thanks, um, it, bro. it really had me engaged to want to listen to it and want to finish it so appreciate you know, it like i listen to your episodes um, some i like some i don't it's like everybody else's i mean not every album has uh, a hit on you sure you know it's the same with our show some resonate really well with people and they love it and others like crickets but that one was fucking gold. Thanks, bro. Yeah. I'll try to that do. Was gold. I'll
0: try to deliver more of that.
3: Maybe because Luke wasn't in it. <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> <Right>.
0: <laughs> I know what I'm not. That? I know what I'm not needing. <laughs> Luke. Luke always helps me, and, and i have learned a lot from Luke. That's for sure.
1: No, Luke, unfortunately, uh, it was a Monday morning. I was busy getting American people
2: selling, selling is stuff. Tough. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah,
1: it's tough. Tell us about
0: it. That's yeah. why
2: we have been unable to have guests so much because yeah. we're recording in the evening now. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. the timing It's just like in New York right now. But
0: I like to talk a lot, and Luke. has has really taught me how to ask questions and like shut up and listen. And Glenn always gives me some good feedback. So we're always learning. And just for anyone listening, don't hesitate to do something incorrect because you should always learn from it. It's better to do something and fail
3: than do nothing and just sit in the corner in the dark. This whole podcasting thing has been a great education. I get to have a friend across the table to me, listen to his experiences, think about things that Pat's gone out and said and done and guests that we have on the show. And I think if, you, if you're missing the point of that yourself as an interviewer or somebody who's involved in a conversation, you've missed the point. You've missed yep. the bus. Agree.
2: All right. All right. Do That's it. it for another episode of the Canon Paradigm. I hope you like this episode I hope that you share it. I hope that you leave a, a positive review. But what I really hope is that you get onto our mailing list. Oh, the Daily uh, Star. Because <laughs> <laughs> we have it now. Got we have a mailing holiday. list. You. We finally did it. If did I, it. I, yes, it, he did. Yeah. We did it all by yourself. We got I'm a mailing list. If,
1: if, yeah, if I sign up, what do I get?
2: Nothing yet. We're just mm-hmm. we're just figuring that out. What we have is a mailing list. Accolades. Yep. What you'll get is an email. That's it. I don't, like we're, uh, Emails at some point. The mailing list will be told eventually when episodes come out, once we set up some automations for that. Eventually, you'll be told about events that we're doing. Eventually, I'll be pitching my new course to you. There'll be lots of different things eventually. Eventually, we'll inform you of our sponsors, but right now, nothing. Yeah, just go we'll definitely put our sponsors What was there, the catalyst for
1: the mailing list? And I, I think I might be able to... I'm gonna let you answer it and then I'm gonna see if it was what I thought.
2: We're trying to
3: wrap up the show. We're never gonna finish this. You know? <laughs> I, <know. laughs>
2: I think Meadow is gonna collapse. Correct. I think that the company Facebook Beyond is going. that, yeah. And this is for anyone who has
1: a Facebook group or an Instagram page for that matter, you don't own that. No. They could take it from you
3: tomorrow.
2: Yeah. And they do. Correct. If they wanna give you negative punishment, it's like, they will slap that out of your hands. I truly think yeah. that what's happening. I mean, this is probably relevant to our other jobs but yep. uh, or my former other job, but the shit with TikTok at the moment, mm-hmm. I mean, we did a thing for Patreon yep. a long time ago and I said, TikTok is either going to take over or get banned. Yep. And they're trying hard to fucking ban yep. it. Australian governments banned it from all devices. Yep. Uh, Chris
1: Minns used it to win the election and then banned it like the next day. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> Well played, sir.
2: So TikTok's problematic for many reasons, you know, from people's points of view. But Facebook, I think one of the things that I didn't understand until pretty recently sort of understanding more about business is two negative quarters, and that's the end of your business. Like you're done. People will dump the stock and you'll collapse. And that is not far away from happening with Facebook. It nearly happened with Netflix. Mm. Netflix found a way out. The way that our economy works is on this idea that everything grows forever and it's just not going to happen. And Netflix, that was terrifying. That was the main catalyst was when Netflix nearly collapsed.
1: Having like a really popular Facebook group, let's say, like you guys have or like anyone, without, let's say, a mailing list as well, it's like having one of the most profitable restaurants, let's say, like a McDonald's or whatever it is, right, on top of a volcano.
3: Yeah. (laughs) And you just don't know when that thing's going to go off. I don't have anywhere near as much insight because I haven't been involved in that marketing profile like you guys Mm. have. However, what has always alarmed me is when people just get banned for some of the most insignificant things and they literally just shut down their page. Yeah. And I just think, wow, that is incredible control that they have there and they basically can just say, well,
2: we don't like what you're doing. It doesn't fall within our paradigm of thinking, so fuck you, we're switching you off. Yeah, totally. Truth be told, the reason that I'm trying to get a mailing list going and I want to get in touch with everyone is not like a marketing thing because we don't – Truth be told, we don't really market in the Facebook group. It's just a community. And the podcast uh, sells itself. Yeah. We don't, we got nothing to sell. Yeah. People can join the Patreon, but yeah, exactly. we don't have anything I mean. else to the sell. The Patreon sells itself through the, yeah. the value that people get from the content. That's right. So, like, and people want to support us. We tell people about it and it's at the end, like, it's in the wrap up of things, yeah. but it's not we don't push it. We both have jobs. We just, and the only thing we do with the Patreon money is buy more gear to continue doing the podcast. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's, and pay that's, the ATO. Yeah, and pay the tax that oh comes it. that. But, yeah, that's just gone up. But, but we're not – Fuck them. I don't want a mailing list in order to market to people. What I do want a mailing list is just to be able to stay in touch with people. Exactly. Because, I because think at the that-
1: moment you put a post in there – Right? There's how many people in the group right now?
2: About 10,000. So what's in like, let's say you put I'm, a post up. You'd I'm be lucky, lucky if... to get 10% engagement. Correct. I'm lucky to get 10% So the 90%
1: engagement. of people who have said, I like your group and I'd maybe like to see a post from Pat. Yeah.
2: They never see it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Whereas if I get email, we get everyone's email. We can email you as often as, as we like. And that's not say it's not... We're not trying to make money out of the podcast. We both have full-time jobs, but that allows us to stay in touch with the audience and I feel very strongly, I feel very proud of the community that we've created around the the podcast and it's highly possible, even likely – that Meta as a company could disappear in the next in two and, and a half years, yeah. wow. and all it takes is the, like so. This is what we've got ten minutes. We talk about it, but for anyone that's listening, we're at the wrap up. But, <laughs> like we when, started it <laughs> when Netflix had negative growth for a quarter. The only reason people invest in Netflix is that it grows, right? So it's yeah. a publicly traded company. The moment it stops growing, shareholders are going to pull their money out, and it just collapses. It's a pyramid that just falls in on itself. And the problem Netflix kind of found is their CEO even said it, like maybe everyone who has Netflix is going to get Netflix, right? Like they were like with – I think they've got – Like saturation you mean? Yeah, like we've, yeah. everybody that's going to get it has got it. Is that right? what
1: prompted the whole thing with the passwords?
2: Yeah so, yeah, so they've had to figure out a way because it's not just that people are unhappy with the Netflix content, right? Because for the most part the content's pretty good, right? Like people can come and go from that kind of thing. It is what it is. But they've realized they're like – Everyone's got it. So we have to find a way to get people who can't get it because they can't afford it. All right. Well, we'll make a cheaper version and we'll put ads in it. And also we have to find a way to stop people who are sharing accounts to make them stop sharing accounts Mm. so that we get two separate accounts because we're no longer growing. But the issue with those giant companies is that once you hit saturation and you're no longer growing, you get a negative quarter where shareholders look at it and go, shit, my shares went down. I've lost money this quarter. They just sell. And you get another one and then more people sell. And now it's a rush and the whole thing will just collapse and disappear. And that could happen to Meta. That could happen to Instagram and that could happen at any minute. Not that it's a problem, it's just the reality of the world, but there are so many social media apps now that vacuum will just be filled in an instant. Mm. And right now Facebook and Meta are the leading – or Facebook and Instagram, Meta together, mm. they are the leading social media platform only because they were first, not because they have the best functionality, not because they have the best user interface, not because of any reason other than that they were first. And so when they collapse, it just means that that giant will become – 10 the people will just go across to all the other platforms that they're already on and they'll start investing more time and energy into that. And the experience of the world, what, what we think of the social media has potential to change. Now this may not happen, but it could, it could happen for it sure. Could, it could, it could not, but either way you own your email list. Yeah, that's right. So that's why we're developing an email list because we want to, as I say, we've just spent five years or however long we've been doing this mm building a strong community around the podcast and it's not like it'll stop us doing the podcast and stop people having access to it but it will stop us being able to communicate with people directly Mm. and have people communicate so easily with us Mm. and so by having an email list if facebook just disappears which it could happen one day then we can email everyone and go hey okay we're putting in the work into discord come over to there or we're moving to whatever other social media there is, like let's try and carry the community over to there or we create our own message board or something yeah. like that in order to create, keep the community. Yep. All right. There's my little economics lesson. That's it. Get on the fucking mailing list. <laughs> <laughs> After all that. that the, the longest list. outro in the history of this. Podcast. We're not even done. Yeah. Yep. So Patreon getting that a couple of bucks a month, get you some cool stuff. We've got like. Imagine cool- if,
3: if, Half those 10,000 people invested in our Patreon. Yeah, we buy the Lamborghini. I'm on the whatever it is, the second tier. Is it 15 bucks a month, whatever it is? Uh, the second tier is 10.
1: What US,
2: it's US 10. though. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's so, USD. Yeah, D- yeah, yeah. So be... in,
1: in Australian pesos, it's Me like too. 15. Yeah, yeah. in dollary dues. <laughs> yeah, Thanks, guys. Just, Appreciate your yeah,
2: support. Guys. You're looking at your money here. At the table. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah table. I'm, I'm enjoying this mic. This is some good. Yeah, we got the good gear because we got the good friends that look after us. That's right. All right. We said we would. Yeah, we did. I mean, to be honest, since we're ranting, we're fucking incredibly lucky that we have all this shit. Like, it's It's incredible the level of support that we have from people. It's it's It's, amazing. It's it's incredible, and we appreciate it more than... I always say this when we do the live streams, like, it still blows my fucking mind that people give us money to do this. Cause I see the stats. Like you'd see, like when we did that thing, you know, only a very small percentage of people who are in the Patreon actually consume the content. Yeah. A lot of people are just supporting the show. Uh, the, they yeah. enjoy the idea of the show yeah. the more than the Patreon content. Yeah. But then you get people who are like, hey, where's my content if I'm <laughs> if I'm 10 minutes late? They're like, Junkies. where's my content? But <laughs> like, you know, it takes all sorts. Yep. All right. So again, the Patreon. Buy a t shirt spring there's links to all this stuff in the description yeah we'll, in the in the show notes show notes the show yeah. notes yeah all right if you want to get in contact let's jump into that facebook group before it collapses and get on the <laughs> email list or you can shoot us an email we are info at the canonparadigm.com put that in your whitelist so that we don't get spam filtered from you because you're on the mailing list now if you're listening to this you're on the mailing list yep just give
3: pat a tickle with your champagne fingers <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of Life With Your Dog. Please share with your friends if you're enjoying our podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook, Life With Your Dog Podcast. My name is Panos and to keep up with my dog training adventures, tips and techniques, you can find me on Instagram at np__dog__training, underscore
1: underscore my website npdogtraining.com or my YouTube channel, Nutris Pooches. Thanks for listening guys. My name is Luke. If you'd like to find out more about my dog training services, you can find me at www.kizuna, that's k i z u n a, au. I'm also on Instagram at kizuna canine training Thanks again and we'll see you next time.